It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers, and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law. Are plaintiffs' lawyers involved in a kind of competition? Can Congress force a judicial code on the justices? Interviews with prominent attorneys and Bloomberg legal experts. My guest is former federal prosecutor Robert Mintz. Joining me is Bloomberg Law reporter Kyle Janner. And analysis of important legal issues, cases, and headlines. Is it unusual, a grand jury like this, to suspect people aren't telling the truth? One of the first times the Justice Department has called for the breakup of a major company. Bloomberg Law. With June Grasso from Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the best of Bloomberg Law. Tonight we'll look back at some high profile intellectual property cases. Will Ed Sheeran's copyright win help other songwriters? The Supreme Court will decide a trademark clash involving a chewable dog toy that mimics the Jack Daniels whiskey bottle. And Hermes wins the first NFT trademark trial. Wow, cool, a bag. You like it? Hello, I'm a girl, it's a purse. Not just a purse, it's a Birkin bag. I went to school with a guy named Birkin. I don't think this is the same Birkin. Oh. Rory Gilmore may not have known about the ultimate status symbol, but her grandmother did. Oh my God, a Birkin bag. You've heard of it? Of course. That's a very nice purse. Oh, maybe I shouldn't use it. Oh no, a Birkin bag is meant to be used and seen. The iconic Birkin bags range in price from $12,000 to more than $300,000. And there's a six-year waiting list to purchase one. So luxury brand Hermes went to trial to protect its valuable rights to the Birkin trademark, suing an artist for selling meta-Birkin NFTs, digital images depicting the Birkin but covered in colorful, cartoonish fur. The artist Mason Rothschild claimed the meta-Birkins were works of art and protected speech under the First Amendment. But the jury disagreed, finding the NFTs were more like consumer products subject to strict trademark laws with no First Amendment protections. My guest this hour is intellectual property litigator Terence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. Terry, the jury found Rothschild guilty of trademark infringement, dilution, and cyber squatting. Do we know what test they used to come to that decision? Well, the judge specifically asked the jury to determine whether or not the meta Birkins produced by Mr. Rothschild were artistic works or consumer products. And they answered that question saying that they did not view them as artwork, they viewed them as consumer products. And so we have to assume that they at least considered the Rogers test because one of the requirements of the Rogers test is that it be an expressive work, you know, artistic work. It would have been rejected out of hand. There's this blurry line between art and commercial products. So the jury determined that NFTs are more akin to commercial products. Does that 
have any impact on future cases? Not really. The finding of the jury is a fact finding. Legal findings are left to the judge, the court. The jury only makes fact findings. And the factual circumstances change from case to case. This is particularly true in trademark law, where you can have widely different facts producing widely different results. So that finding by the jury is limited to this specific case against Mr. Rothschild. So people have been looking at this as a case that had the potential to clarify how trademark law applies to NFTs. Does it do that? Well, I don't think a single case, unless it happens to be in front of the Supreme Court, is going to clarify the law in this area. What this case does do is lay down a marker on behalf of trademark owners. It points in the direction of findings that the metaverse is subject to the Lanham Act, the U.S. trademark laws, and it will encourage other trademark owners to now bring suits to enforce their rights in the metaverse. I am aware of two clients of ours who have been thinking of bringing lawsuits and simply waiting to see how this came out. This would encourage them. Now, the other thing this case does is it lays the foundation for appellate decisions. So now there is a concrete verdict in a case that can go up on appeal, and we can see what the appellate courts think of the application trademark laws to NFTs. Yeah, so Rothschild's attorneys said that they'll take every legal avenue that they have. What are the legal avenues that they have? So the very first option that the defense has here is to file a motion with Judge Rykoff asking him to set aside the jury verdict and to grant judgment to the defense on the legal theories that are presented in the case. This is going to be challenging for the defense. It's something they will do, they have to do, but Judge Rykoff basically said at the motion to dismiss stage that he was uncertain as to whether or not there was sufficient factual predicate here for the defendant to take advantage of the so-called Rogers test. And he wanted the jury to give him some advice on that. And the jury gave him advice. They said, yes, there's not a factual predicate here. This is not an expressive work. It's not art. It's a consumer product. And the Rogers test does not apply to consumer products, at least so we think. The Rogers test, which was from out of this court, Second Circuit, expressly says that a First Amendment protection extends to the use of celebrity names in expressive works where the use of the name is relevant to the work and it's not intentionally misleading. And here, that key element that the jury says is missing is whether or not this is an artistic work. So I think they will lose the post-trial motion unless he wants to simply disregard the jury, and they'll take it up then on appeal to the Second Circuit. And this becomes pretty important because the Second Circuit is the author of the Rogers test, which the defense heavily relies upon here. It is also one of the most important appellate courts in the nation with respect to trademark law. And that's where we will really get some guidance going forward into the future. The Second Circuit affirms the verdict here and says, yes, this was trademark infringement. That's going to really be very influential across the rest of the United States, even though the Second Circuit's purview is limited to to New York and Connecticut. The Supreme Court is hearing a case involving a squeaky dog toy and the Jack Daniels trademark. Could that decision affect this case? So in my view, that has always been the 800-pound gorilla in the room. 
that people have tended to ignore here, particularly the judge. In that case, the Rogers test is squarely presented to the Supreme Court as to whether it is a legitimate test, whether it really exists. Because remember, Second Circuit made that up out of whole cloth. It's not in the trademark laws. It's not statutory. It's judge-made law. And the Supreme Court might say, well, there is no such thing in the the trademark laws. Or the Supreme Court could say, yes, we have to have such a test as the Rogers test in order to protect First Amendment interests in the trademark field. But we don't like the way the Second Circuit works the test. Our test will be, and then they'll explain what it is. Or they could simply say, you know, Rogers test is a great idea. It really protects First Amendment interests. It works perfectly fine. We're going to narrowly cabinet to protection of celebrity names used in artistic works. Or they may expand it and say we're going to expand it to expressive works more generally. But so with all those question marks hanging over this case, it really made no sense to try it, in my view, other than to say you're moving your docket of cases down the road because the whole thing could be tossed out by a decision of the Supreme Court, and there might have to be a do-over. I don't think Hermes was in this for the money, but the jury only awarded $133,000 in damages. That's less than some Birkin bags cost. The plaintiff, Hermes, only asked for about $250,000. So the jury gave them a portion of that. Trademark infringement cases don't typically result in significant damage awards. Now, part of the specific reason here is that Mr. Rothschild just didn't sell that many. I think the evidence at trial was he sold 55.2 of these NFTs. And so he just didn't generate that much profit. And the key in the trademark area is what the plaintiff, the trademark owner, gets is a disgorgement of the um, ill-gotten gains from the infringer. So there's a cap on it to start with. Now, what we are going to see here is a post-trial motion for attorney's fees, and those could be substantial, and I don't know whether the court will grant them, but that is where the real hit on Mr. Rothschild could come from. But I think when you look at this holistically, this case was never about recovering damages. This case was about protecting the brand, the Birkin trademark. Hermes apparently has specific plans in the metaverse, as many fashion houses do, to start introducing their own NFTs, and it needed this sort of trademark protection to extend to the metaverse. And so this was a case about setting a precedent, and I think they've been very successful in doing that. I understand that fashion brands like Louis Vuitton are now filing applications for trademarks for design marks covering digital content, including NFTs. Will that help them pursue these kinds of claims in the future? Yes. A registered trademark provides a brand owner with certain procedural advantages as well as the right to obtain attorney's fees in a lawsuit. So there are advantages of that. It is theoretically possible for a trademark owner to proceed without a registration under a theory of unfair competition. But I think the advantage here is to get the registration should not be a difficult thing to do. And to have the full panoply then of trademark claims and remedies available. Coming up next on the Bloomberg Law Show, Terry Ross and I will discuss the Supreme Court oral arguments in that trademark clash involving the chewable dog toy that mimics the Jack Daniels whiskey bottle.
You're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. At the center of a trademark dispute at the Supreme Court was a chewable dog toy mimicking the iconic Jack Daniels bottle, but with poop jokes. So perhaps it was inevitable that there would be quips, laughter, and confusion. Here's Justice Samuel Alito asking the attorney for Jack Daniels, Lisa Blatt, whether any reasonable person would think the whiskey company had approved the use of its trademark on the dog toy. A reasonable person would not think that Jack Daniels had approved this. I think if you're selling urine, you're probably going to win on a motion to, I mean, on a 12B6, but you're probably also violating some state law. But sure. The, no, no, it does, you're not selling urine. It's exactly oh, this you, toy. Oh, sorry, I thought it was. No, no it's, it's exactly it's, it's this toy. Urine. I'm sorry. Which purportedly <laughs> contains some oh. sort of dog excrement oh, I'm or sorry. urine. Okay, my bad. Justice Alito, I don't know how old you are, but you went to law school. You're very smart. You're analytical. You have hindsight bias. And well, I went to something. a law school where I didn't learn any law. So no. Okay, but. By the way, that was a diss of Yale Law School. Jokes aside, the issue was whether the dog toy, which includes references to old number two and 43% poo by volume, is entitled to First Amendment protection as a parody of the whiskey. But Justice Elena Kagan didn't get it. In this case... What, what, what is there to it? What is the parody here? The parody? Yeah. The parody is... I, I, of... I, maybe I just have no sense of humor, but... <laughs> What's the parody? My guest this hour is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. Terry, so many of the Supreme Court arguments are so weighty, so heavy, but not this one. I mean, the humor at times seemed to sink to the level of the dog toy here. And this is a case we've been waiting for. So, Terry, did it meet your expectations? I thought the actual argument, particularly from the um, Solicitor General's office, was particularly good and cut through a lot of the uh, murkiness and went straight to the heart of the issue. I thought the tone of the questioning did, as you describe it, descend a little bit into the gutter. For reasons I can't explain, over about a year, year and a half now, this court with its new makeup seems to be unable to approach intellectual property cases without using a raft of examples, many of which are sort of ludicrous and really don't advance the ball much. But that has been the name of the game in intellectual property cases. You know, you go to the Supreme Court to argue one of those, and you better be prepared for a bunch of rather silly examples being tossed at you. And that's how this hypothetical works, now that hypothetical works. Does a parody have to be good? Because Justice Elena Kagan said she didn't get it. Yeah, when I heard Justice Kagan ask that question and say she didn't get it, I think the way she phrased it is something like, maybe I'm the only one here who doesn't get it. And I felt like jumping up and saying, no, I don't get it, too. I don't see where the parody is. I mean, I would go so far as to describe this as merely sophomoric humor. And as Groucho Marx would say, that's even an insult to sophomores. I don't see what the parody is. 
and Mr. Cooper, who was representing VIP products that produced this dog toy, kept saying, you know, it was a parody and trying to explain why. And it wasn't just Justice Kagan. At one point, Justice Jackson chimed in and said she didn't get it either. So this is one of the whole problems with the Rogers test. I mean, what the Rogers test says in its pure form is that the name of a celebrity used in the title of an expressive work does not constitute trademark infringement if it is artistically relevant and not explicitly misleading. And various justices attacked, what does it mean to be artistically relevant? Other justices attacked, what's an expressive work? Is everything that has a statement on a t-shirt an expressive work automatically? And yet one other justice, I believe it was Justice Gorsuch, attacked this concept of what does it mean to be explicitly misleading since the standard under the Lanham Act, the trademark laws, is confusion, not misleading them. And so there seemed to be this consensus on the court that the test was very difficult to understand or apply. And frankly, Mr. Cooper representing VIP products didn't do much to help it. Indeed, he came up with his own test. Well, I would say confusion, misleading, welcome to intellectual property law. Would they ever be able to come up with a test that's easier to follow than the Rogers test? I'm not sure that the Rogers test is easy to follow. I'm not sure that there's an alternative. And this was an issue that was explicitly posed by Justice Jackson, who essentially said, okay, well, what do we replace it with? I um, agree with you, though, that there seems to be a lot of confusion at the court on this. And I think it reflects the new makeup of the court. And I've said this before on your show, June, the loss of Justice Ginsburg, the loss of Justice Breyer were body blows to the Supreme Court with respect to intellectual property jurisprudence. They were the two justices who had experience, academic experience, and judicial experience in copyright and trademarks. None of the current sitting justices do. And it was reflected in the argument. There seemed to be a really poor grasp of how the Lanham Act, which sets out the U.S. trademark laws, works. Questions that to trademark lawyers didn't make any sense. And Ms. Blatt, the counsel for Jack Daniels, did a very nice job of respectfully trying to correct their misunderstanding of fundamental trademark law. But it was a steep mountain to climb. I'm not sure she got there. The Rogers test is not very popular in some quarters, is it? The trademark owners desperately want to get rid of the Rogers test. There is an element within the academic community that wants to get rid of the Rogers test. And the Biden administration, to their credit, in a very simple, plain-spoken, but effective argument, said outright that the Rogers test was made up by the Second Circuit, it has no statutory basis, and it should be discarded. That's what's at issue here. And the arguments in favor of eliminating the Rogers test in toto are pretty darn strong. As Justice Thomas says, what's the textual support for that? And all three counsels said there is none. Justice Alito chimed in, well, what about the First Amendment? And the trademark law that we now have, the Lanham Act, has been held consistent with First Amendment no less than four times. And so it's sort of an odd question, but Justice Alito was the one justice who seemed desperate to hang on to the Rogers test. Three justices, by my count, did not ask a single question, and that was Justice Barrett, Justice Kavanaugh, and the Chief Justice. They are all textualists. 
they are probably looking at this appeal from the point of view that Justice Thomas expressed and may have expressed on the part of all of them, thus making it unnecessary for them to talk. What is the textual support for the Rogers test? And as the government said, there is not. The Rogers test is an exception to illegal activity, and it does not have any textual basis. And therefore, I think it's very much at risk, particularly if this clique of justices who did not engage in debate all vote to remove it. Despite all the confusion, what's your take on whether Jack Daniels will win here? It lost at the Ninth Circuit. So the overarching sentiment seemed to be that the Ninth Circuit got this wrong, and that should be reversed. And that would be technically a win for Jack Daniels. The Ninth Circuit decision indeed took the Rogers test and maximalized it, creating a lot of problems. So I think where the court's going to go with this is to say... The Ninth Circuit got it raw. It's got to go back to the district court, and they've got to consider parity. And then the next part is the question mark. Do they say, we're not going to decide the Rogers question now because this case isn't right. We're going to send it back and let it come back up the chain again. So three years from now, we'll be right here again. So that's one <laughs> option, and it's a favorite option of this Supreme Court. The second option is that Justice Thomas cobbles together five votes to do what the Biden administration wants to get rid of the Rogers test. The third option is that somebody cobbles together enough votes to change the Rogers test. I think that's the least likely outcome here. Indeed, I could see this being one of these decisions where you get five, six votes to reverse and send it back to the district court, and you don't get enough votes on any of the Rogers issues. So that remains undecided. So I think that's probably what I would bet on if I had to bet here that the case will go back to the discord, which is a win for Jack Daniels, but without any guidance on the Rogers test, which would be a shame. Coming up next, Ed Sheeran wins over the jury. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. I'm obviously very happy with the outcome of the case, and it looks like I'm not having to retire from my day job after all. But at the same time, I'm unbelievably frustrated that baseless claims like this are allowed to go to court at all. It's the second copyright infringement trial Ed Sheeran has had to go through in a year, and he made a dramatic vow from the witness stand that he would quit music if he was found guilty of infringing Marvin Gaye's 1973 classic, Let's Get It On. But after a two-week trial, it took a jury only two hours to come out with a verdict clearing Sheeran and finding that he and his co-writer had created his Grammy-winning hit, Thinking Out Loud, independently, which is an absolute defense against copyright infringement. Sheeran had defended himself with his guitar, demonstrating for the jury how similar chord progressions are commonplace musical elements found in numerous songs that no songwriter can own. He did a similar demonstration on the Howard Stern Show on Sirius XM. So my one is, um, when your legs don't work like they used to before, and then there's, have I told you lately that I loved you, and then, um, um, People get ready, there's a train coming, um, and then, uh, 
What was the Looks like we made it Look how far we've come, my baby And now she breaks just like a woman. I mean, there was, there was 101 songs. Despite the win, Sheeran expressed frustration at the current litigation frenzy that threatens songwriters. It's devastating to be accused of stealing someone else's song when we've put so much work into our livelihoods. I'm just a guy with a guitar who loves writing music for people to enjoy. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. Terry, the music industry was watching this lawsuit with trepidation. Does the verdict alleviate the fears? You know, will it discourage frivolous copyright lawsuits? You would hope so. It is certainly significant in that regard and seems to indicate that the pendulum in these copyright in song cases has swung back in favor of the singer-songwriters and away from the plaintiffs. You know, this all started with a 2015 lawsuit against Farrell Williams and Robin Thicke for their Blurred Lines song, which purportedly infringed Marvin Gaye's 1977 Gotta Give It Up, and an enormous jury verdict there that got reduced a little bit on appeal. But that sort of created this target for plaintiffs to aim at and encourage them to bring more lawsuits. And now looking back, we've had multiple wins for defendants And it seems like that case involving Robin Thicke and Farrell Williams was actually an outlier and that we may have made too much of it. And keep in mind, there was a unique situation going there in that Robin Thicke had given just a dreadful deposition, which he later claimed he'd been high giving it. And they played that to the jury, and it was so bad, you know, the videotape, that it may have influenced the jury in ways that we didn't fully comprehend at the time. Now with a fantastic performance, and I can't call it anything less than a performance by a sheer on the stand in his case, we see how these cases really do favor the defendant if the defendant is a credible person who gives good testimony and can explain the basis of his song. Yeah, I believe that it was the defense attorney in the Blurred Lines case that said that Sheeran made all the difference here. He was so committed. He was in the court every day. He was on the stand for multiple days. He's this nice guy, but also he took on the defense now and again and even called the musicologist for the other side, said what he was doing was criminal. You're exactly right, June. And he had made the mistake early in his career of caving in and settling a couple copyright lawsuits. The reality is that it's often cheaper to settle some of these copyright suits than to spend the money to defend against them. The problem is, if you get that reputation, people just put you at the top of their list of targets to go after for copyright infringement, even though you've not been held liable for copyright infringement and you don't think you did it. And a couple of years ago, Sheeran apparently said to himself, enough is enough. He defended aggressively a copyright lawsuit in the UK, which he won. It was last year. This case has been going on since before the pandemic. It was brought. And he's been aggressively defending it. And I think with this win, two wins in two years, sending a very strong message that if you come after him for copyright infringement, you better be prepared to go the distance and you better be prepared to get your rear end kicked because he is not giving in anymore, not settling these lawsuits. And that's going to make all the difference going forward for him. The jury found that Sheeran had created thinking out loud independently. That's an absolute defense against copyright infringement, even if it's a song you've heard and it might have influenced you? It is an absolute defense. So you could say that two songs have 
some substantial similarity, which is the test for copyright infringement. But if the song was independently created, it just doesn't matter that they're substantially similar. That's an absolute defense. And the key, I think, here at this trial was Ed Sheeran getting up on the stand, as you said multiple times, and explaining the songwriting process in such detail. Even explaining he wanted to take a break, go take a shower, came back, his co-writer was working on some chords. The detail is what brought it home to the jury that this wasn't in any sense a copying, that there was a true creative process here that he was able to relate to them and explain in enormous specific factual detail and then was backed up by his co-writer on this particular song, Amy Wadge. Do you think the musicologists played a part in this? I mean, whether one was better than the other, whether the jury liked one more than the other? So musicologists testify as expert witnesses. The only difference between expert witness and and the other witness is that an expert witness is allowed to offer his or her opinion based on their expertise, whereas a lay witness can only testify to facts that they actually saw, witnessed, experienced. And as a result, sometimes jurors, because there's this process of qualifying an expert, making them seem to be great, jurors say, well, they must know something more than we do because the judge has specifically said they're an expert in the field and we may want to defer to them. My experience has been that in these sorts of cases where you have a very articulate defendant who can explain the songwriting process, that the musicologists sort of flip into the background a little bit and are less important. Now, that said here, in this so-called battle of the experts between the two musicologists, it's clear that Ed Sheeran's guy got the better of the argument and got helped in that respect enormously by Ed Sheeran's own testimony. In his testimony during his defense part of the case, Ed Sheeran specifically went after the plaintiff's musicologist and explained how this particular chord progression, or at least the second chord in the chord progression, was not substitutable and how it really made a significant difference in how a pop song came out. And he played it and explained to the jury almost as if he was his own musicologist expert. And I think that's really was the turning point. His musicologist then picked up on that theme and supported it and sort of gave legal credence to it. But again, I think this was Ed Sheeran's testimony that won the day. The jury verdict doesn't set any legal precedent, but the way that Sheeran testified about chord progressions he used that are common among songwriters and building blocks of music, do you think this provides a blueprint for other songwriters accused of copyright infringement? Well, the defense here certainly wrote a script on how to handle this sort of copyright infringement lawsuit, and if followed, should yield similar results. The interesting thing about this whole case is that the judge studiously avoided writing any decisions that might have served in any way as precedential. It was very curious. It makes it very difficult to challenge on appeal as well. What you have here is a straight-up jury verdict with a jury finding, and appellate courts say that absent some sort of corruption, some sort of fraud committed, they got proper instructions, which they did, that you don't over return a jury verdict. So it's interesting in that respect, because I think it's less the precedential value of this case that matters going forward than sort of the notion that defendants are no longer going to roll over and settle just because of an accusation of copyright infringement. They're going to vigorously defend and that this is not going to be easy pickings, which is how it's been viewed for the last five, six, seven years. Despite all we've said about the defense here, there are two more lawsuits against Sheeran over the same song brought by investment banker and musician David Pullman and Structured Asset Sales, which bought a portion of Ed Townsend's estate. And after the verdict, Pullman said that he and his lawyers had learned from the trial, we know what to expect. 
why another trial about the same song? It's a great question, and it's a real problem in this field. My understanding of the situation is that a third-party funder obtained rights to portion of the copyright owned by Ed Townsend's estate, which gave them independent standing to sue for infringement. I think there's going to be a real question whether or not the verdict here, which was a specific verdict of independent creation, is what's known as res judicata. In other words, it decides the issue once and for all. That motion will have to be brought by the defense, and it's a pretty strong motion. So they may not get to a trial in that second lawsuit. Coming up next, I'll continue this conversation with Terry Ross. We'll talk about that quick verdict. This is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. After a two-week trial, it took a jury only two hours to come out with a verdict clearing pop star Ed Sheeran of copying Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. I've been talking to intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross of Catanuchin Rosenman. So, Terry, as far as the similar lawsuits pending against Sheeran over the same song brought by investment banker and musician David Pullman. Pullman said one of his lawsuits would be different because it involved a copyright on the recording of Let's Get It On, rather than just the sheet music. I know we've discussed it before, the sheet music versus the recording, whether that does make a difference. So it's one of the anomalies of 20th century U.S. music that we did not have copyright protection for recorded sound until very late in the 20th century, uh, 1978, if I recall correctly. The law that was the copyright law for most of the 20th century, the Copyright Act of 1909, did not allow for copyright in recorded sound because it was in its infancy. It did allow in copyright law in the United States, going well back into the 19th century, allowed for copyright in sheet music. And so at the time that Let's Get It On was published and recorded, There is only copyright available in sheet music. Now, there is one sort of variant on that. There are states, individual states, that have allowed copyright and recorded sound earlier than the United States Congress did. And apparently, they're going to make some sort of claim under state law. You remember a couple of years ago, the old pop group, The Turtles, who recorded all of their music prior to the Copyright Act of 1976 coming into effect and allowing for copyright recorded sound. They brought a series of lawsuits across the country under various state laws, accusing the streaming services of infringing their copyright, purported copyright, and ultimately settled when they got a favorable decision out of one of those states, I think Florida, maybe. So there's this issue that has always been hanging out there and has never been decided by the Supreme Court. The Copyright Act, both the 1909 Act, the 1976 Act, preempted all other laws. But because recorded sound wasn't covered by the 1909 Act, it wasn't, in theory, preemptive of recorded sound copyright, because there was none. So the states were free to do what they wanted to do. And so that's what the reference here is with respect to this other lawsuit. In the Sheeran case, it was a computerized version of Let's Get It On, based on the sheet music. If the plaintiffs in the next case can actually play the song, do you think that would make a difference, even if Sheeran testifies as he, as he did here? So it clearly made a difference in the Blurred Lines case. I was not in the courtroom when that happened. A lot of people said that the playing of those two, when listened to by the jury, seemed to have an impact upon the jury. So it is possible that it would have that impact here. I've listened to both songs. You know a little bit about music, but I'm not some sort of musicologist expert. (laughs) 
And I'm not sure that would make a difference to me. But, you know, every jury is different, and I'll have to wait and see what happens. But again, I'm, I think it's important to note that the jury made a really important factual finding here that this was an independent creation. That should really, in my view, control. The deliberation time here is also not the norm. That jury took only like two hours to do this. I mean, I mean think about this, Jim. Yeah. The jury gets back there. And they take a half an hour to get organized, get a cup of coffee, whatever. And that's assuming that it's not the lunch break already, in which case they kill an hour. Then they spend 15, 20 minutes arguing about four person because you got to pick the four person first. And the bailiff brings in the forms and they go, they go, okay, well, what is it that we're supposed to send that sort of thing? You know, so that two plus hours is probably only an hour of deliberation time. It'll be interesting to see if those other cases get to trial. Because Ed Sheeran now, it's his second time testifying, second time winning. I think he knows what to do now. Thanks so much, Terry. That's intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.